How is your dog? Hey everybody, welcome to Coffee with Butterscotch, the official podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. We are a three-brother video game studio, and this is our show. It's a show for fans of Butterscotch games and other independent game developers. I'm Seth. I'm Adam. And I'm Sam. And uh, you can find our games at games.bscotch.net. We also have a fantastic community over at forums.bscotch.net. So head over there and say hello. And we also take questions toward the end of the podcast, which come from podcast.bscotch.net. So if you want to get your questions in here for future episodes, head over there and, and ask away. And also before we get into the meat, potatoes, and you know other such vegetables like bone marrow. Show, Bone marrow of the show. Uh, <laughs> Thinking about a good we stew. Have a, we have a warning. This show is not for children. Unless you're a very profane child. Or a child with a beard who's also over the age of 18. If you yeah. have a beard, it's probably fine. If you're a bearded child over age 18, everything's don't even worry about it. Then you are good to go. Uh, so today's a, a sad day uh, I, because I don't remember anything from the last week. <laughs> Uh, we were trying to come up with what, with uh, you know some some news and events and stuff of what we did, and I couldn't remember anything that's happened in the past week. Which is actually funny because a lot happened yeah. actually. Now that we finally got it on paper or computer, so on on computer paper, uh, well, one nice landmark for uh, crash lines or milestone, depending on your producer talk. Is uh, the fact that we got all of the bog it's a kilometer stone, kilometer stone. <laughs> all of the bog bosses are now uh, in. They're implemented. They're fightable. Uh, they are enjoyable to fight, and they have large sort of uh, sagas that lead up to them that players can can saga their way up to them and then kill them. Saga, 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 across. All right. Now this is obviously important. We should get back to this. But first, I have a question. What? Which is why the hell is it called a milestone? I mean, like when you're on the highway. There are mile markers. There's right? mile markers. Which well, are signs. Think, well, yeah, but think about like back back when the first mile was invented. It's not like they had a. It's not like Steve's signage existed. My guess is <laughs> it's a Greek or Roman situation where they just like heaped stones on the side of the road at various points. Yeah, it right. probably has something to do with the fact that the the concept of the mile was invented in the Stone Age, or uh, uh, because it's so damn arbitrary. Yeah, and it's, I think I think what. What the likelihood was there is that every mile someone died because if you played like Oregon Trail, you had to put a gravestone. Yeah, you had to put a gravestone or a cairn. You know, you had to. Or because there was a mob of people who would stone them to death when they got that distance. Approximately every mile when they when they tried to leave the village. Right. Yeah. If they got a mile out, I think we're on. So, are you telling me, Sam, that you think that every time? Every time people had to travel, just any in any direction, any distance, for any reason, somebody died every mile. I guess, just- <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think over the course of time, yeah, I had bet, to sacrifice. I bet someone has died at every, roughly every major mile marker. Um, or not major, but just every mile marker on any given <laughs> just, road. Which, throughout because the time you could start history. anywhere, turns into just every given position along a road. Pretty much, yeah. People die everywhere. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. No one, you cannot escape death. Do not try. It will claim you on the road. (laughs) This is is just taking a a (laughs) dark turn. Oh, man. I feel weird now. I feel tingly. But listen to some Death Cab for Cutie. You know, I'm feeling a little dark. (laughs) Yeah. Is that Uh, that like an emo band? I'm pretty sure it's an emo band. I found a remix story about it. It's cool. All right. <laughs> it's got sick dubstep beats in the background. Uh, uh, yeah, but we, we've been working on... Well, Adam and Sam have been working on the story in the bog of Crashlands. Yeah, so Sam got through... He's, he's been working on the, the side questing, which is how you get to the various boss fights. And, uh, and I have been finishing the sort of re-engineering final editing pass on the main bog story, which is now done as of earlier today. And so that means I get to move on and start working on the tundra, which is just the next final last biome. Yeah, and I would That's say good for you because you've never even been in the tundra. Well, yeah, before. I'd actually barely been in the in the bog. Yeah, all of us have spent very little time in the bog and tundra. Actually, I was yeah. trying to I was working on some of the side quests today, and I couldn't figure out what recipe to use as like a reward because I haven't like I haven't thoroughly played through the bog in the same fashion that I have through the savannah, which is to say, you don't for like really six know what's straight. good. I don't even know what's in there. 
You know, yeah. I look at the list. I'm like, oh, there's a telescope. I made that like three months ago. And I forgot yeah. about it. You know, um, well, I'm pretty sure stuff. there's more stuff in the bog than in the. Well, so Savannah. here's the fun thing about that, and I don't know if anybody remembers some of our blog posts from ages ago, but we were we were having this weird problem where, uh, so we were, we were trying to make sure that the game content, you know, essentially more mechanics kept keep opening up until the end of the savannah. Um, at which point the savannah is essentially like an intro biome. Now it happens the last. It's a twenty-four hour long. Intro. Yeah, it, it takes about twenty twenty-four <laughs> hours playthrough. But uh, but essentially, by the time you reach the end of the savannah, you've been introduced to. I'm pretty sure you've been introduced to every sort of major mechanic that exists in the game. Nearly, um, except for the sort of throwing a thing on a thing. Oh right, right. Okay, yeah. So there's there's a few yeah. sort of interaction based things, but for the most part, like all the loop based things are there. You know, all the you have all the you game have things, logic. Yeah, you have things in every equipment slot. You have a pet. You know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so when we did the bog and the tundra, when we were designing those, we were like, oh, we just, you know, we need more things in here. Uh, so there's more sort of interesting stuff to do. And also we were having this problem where the, uh, this is before we really figured out how to do the procedural world generation in a way that made it not randomly boring. And so, uh, Seth and I were both having, I, I remember this distinctly because we had a several mild panic attacks because we're like, oh God, like, we keep running around in the bog, and for some reason, it doesn't feel good. Well, it was it was even worse than that. It was that the game, the basically, the further you got into it, the worse it felt from an exploration yeah. sense. Right. Yeah, it, it seemed to be like, you're just like, oh, this is getting more and more boring instead of right. more and more interesting. And yeah. so the response was, oh, clearly, we just need like more shit in here. There just needs to be more stuff. So uh, the bog, I think, has maybe two extra land types, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that's like 30% more land types than the savannah has and then the tundra because all this happened before we actually figured out what we were doing and so the tundra has even more uh land types and it actually has an extra creature even like basically the amount of content in the game actually in each biome actually goes up and i want to point out that this this trend has continued actually with the story even after we fix this problem yeah that's true uh where i was i just counted yesterday um the bog is now up to i believe 92 sort of story nodes and that's without having any of the sort of the just the general side questing stuff in, but having all the box boss story stuff in. Uh, whereas the Savannah is currently, which is in its done state, sitting at 103 of these story notes. And yeah, my with guess, all of its stuff. right? And my guess is that the bog is going to end up somewhere around like 115, 120, uh, if I sort of get my way with all these sort of uh, ideas for side quests that I have. And so. Then, and we're, you know, we're carrying characters through each biome. So you kind of have some fun characters that come and do similar sort of things. And, uh, you know, like lab assistants or, or, uh, kind of map makers and stuff who want you to perform similar functions in new zones. And so the, it's kind of like a rolling, it's like a Katamari Damachi ball of storytelling goodness, right? Mm. As you go forward, there's just like more and more cool stuff to do. And the game actually does get bigger. So it supports it, which is, which is a happy accident because of our freak out from before we knew what we were doing. Well, <laughs> yeah. we actually, we made, a, we made a blog post as well about why it was that things felt so weird and crappy as you got further and further out. Mm -hmm. uh, and it basically came down to, it basically came down to the shape of the world. Right. So originally we had three biomes. We still have three biomes, in but we originally had three biomes rings. in concentric rings where the central one was the starting biome. The second biome, the bog, was basically a fat ring. It was like a donut. Like a, like a donut around the central one. And then the tundra was an even bigger donut around that. And uh, it just felt crappy and weird, even though they were all programmed the same way and had similar content, etc. But the savannah always felt interesting, which was the problem that we had. It always felt good. And what we, what we discovered from that, and you can read up our uh, blog post about this, but we basically discovered that... People tend to explore radially from a central point, and they kind of make these big sweeping loops that get further and further out. Uh, and that's what that's what is satisfying. Like that's a satisfying way for a human being to explore stuff, or any ape mammal, or anything, right. including spider monkeys. Yeah, so which we actually, is where our research came. Yeah, from. <laughs> we, we ended up digging into the basically the question was how do humans naturally forage. And we ended up doing some research on spider monkeys and a bunch of other monkeys, basically, and found out they use this this sort of uh, uh, ring and node pattern where they'll start in a central point and then work their way out until they find something sort of of interest. 
And then oftentimes, if you're in the case of a spider monkey, you'll sort of build like a, a smaller shelter there in case, like it's basically a safe spot that you found. Uh, and then from that point, then you sort of launch out another. It's kind of like going to the moon and then going to Mars. And all of this is happening from Earth, right? We don't establish or we don't re-Earth Mars and then use that to jump to the next planet. We kind of do everything from here. We will eventually Earth Mars. Probably. But <laughs> that's scheduled for like 2030 or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the problem with the concentric rings was that when you got out to the second biome, you no longer had a central point to explore from because your entry point was like half savanna, half bog. And so the only way to explore was in a, like a 180 degree, you know, cone. And so you couldn't engage in your normal foraging behavior and it made it feel weird. Right. So all we did was just change it so that each bog is its own entire map. And whenever you move between, or sorry, each biome is its own entire map. And anytime you move between, you start in the center and then you can always move outward. Right. So that was a pretty cool uh, pretty cool. Yeah, and it's find. actually, I mean, it's turned out way better for story, too, because, I mean, so some of these story elements, we, we have control over the distance from the center that they are placed, which is essentially a rough way of saying, you know, you're not supposed to be at this particular point until you're able to fight the things that are in this area that are, you know, far away, far ways away from where you start. And of course, if we tried to do this with a concentric ring approach, I mean, you'd have to, it'd be like having a story quest on Earth that made you go from like country from continent to continent as opposed to because you'd have to like in order to get to a really good spot in the bog where you had a story element and then if it was randomly placed somewhere on that donut it's gonna the likelihood is of course like 50 percent that it's gonna be you know on the other half of the donut of the other half of the hemisphere which you haven't explored um so there'd be a lot more walking which would yeah. be terrible. Yeah. Well, and in a in another weird way it made the entire world limited because by making everything in concentric rings uh, the savannah had a limited size because it was completely enclosed, and the bog had a limited size as well. Right. Uh, so, so now we have much, much bigger maps the size of the Netherlands. Oh yeah, wasn't and this? This is when we did before we had the change, and we did the square mileage, and we were like, oh man, yeah. <laughs> this game is so huge, and we found we out. We were talking. Yeah, we were gonna we were gonna talk to people. We were gonna sort of do some PR work and talk to people about how big the game was, and we calculated it out, and it came out to was like it six square miles. It was no, like, it, was, it was like one point. <laughs> yeah, miles. it was something hilariously small, like a parcel of land that a that a person could own. Which was just unacceptable, <laughs> you know. It was like it was like an acre. Yeah, it was I an know. acre. I think it actually was an acre, and we were like, yeah. "What?" So, it was a, our solution was we kept trying to find units of measurement that we could use that would make it seem a lot. Like, how, how many, many square inches was it? Like, right. Yeah, square, how many square meters. I mean, it, there's a lot of square meters in a square mile, so you know. But yeah, so we actually did solve the problem instead of just changing the way we talked about it. Marketing. And then also this weekend we made a, a whole game. Yeah, from from well, we from made an nothing elevator game. to an entire game in a weekend. So here's what happened. Uh, there's a thing called the Indie Speed Run, which happened it's supposed to happen every year, but it didn't happen last year. Um, we did it two Octobers ago, and it's a worldwide competition where developers compete to make a game in 48 hours, and then they get judged harshly by uh, veterans. I, don't I know. guess a, a smattering of industry people, a we'll smattering of people who are do who do stuff about games. So some YouTubers, commentators, uh, right. Other so, developers. so the last time it included like Notch, I think Peter Melanie was in there too. Was he? Yeah. I think he was, and also Yahtzee from Zero Punctuation. Well, he was actually the main guy. Yeah, and so we got we ended up getting second place uh, the, the first time we did it, which uh, the reason was that our game was too hard. Uh, the game we made was Shep Hard, where you're a, it was like an extreme shepherding game. It's incredible. Where you have fun. to yeah, you got to beat wolves to keep them off of your sheep, and you have to whip sheep with your cane to shear their wool off in one swoop. Um, Pretty, it was a pretty small and limited game, though. Mm-hmm. In general, there was you know there was about it was about I think what seven minutes of gameplay. Yeah, I mean you could probably going from not knowing how to play it to beating it would probably take like half an hour just because of how hard it is. But there wasn't which, any like, content. You would fail five or six right. times in that in that time period. Right. right. Um, so this time around, the the theme we got was uh, mercenary. mercenary, and the element which is some object that has to be in the game the element was elevator 
And when we were coming up with our ideas of what to do, Sam proposed a really dumb idea, <laughs> which which was... Sometimes dumb ideas are the best. No, this is it. Like, it was a dumb idea, which was, what if you are the elevator? Like, like this is something somebody would say if they were stoned, right? Like, <laughs> this is apparently like the state I'm in all the time, given my stream of ideas. What if you're the elevator? <laughs> what if you're the elevator moving the earth down around you? Yeah. Yeah. And so naturally, you know, if you think about that concept, wh- what the hell does an elevator do? It goes up and down and it, it opens goes up its and doors. down and it opens doors. Well, it, and it, so it we ships <laughs> it ships goods vertically. Is yeah. What it does. Well, yeah. And so we thought we could probably make a game out of that. I mean, it's that's the fun of a game jam is that it's all about the constraints. And so we sort of by by embracing Sam's idea of being an elevator, <laughs> which for the record was a great idea. It turned out great. <laughs> turned out so, to be. Yeah, so the game we ended up making was called Do You Even Lift? And it you play as an elevator, and there's a bunch of scientists from the Bureau of Science. Uh, for those of you who have played Flop Rocket, you may recognize these guys. Um, they have set forth a... They've unleashed a goopidemic in their Bureau of Science research facilities, and these goop monsters, goopoids, or goopids, I can't remember I think it's what they're called. Goopoids, I think is how we Goopoids know. are coming out of the various labs in these buildings and eating all the scientists. So uh, the chief scientist contacted Captain Vociferous of the Space Hog Riders. The Hogga Riders. Hogga the space Riders. Ho- the Space Hogga Riders, uh, which they are, they're these mercenaries who travel. They're sort of like uh, you know emergency response personnel right. who work for large amounts of money, and they ride these giant flying winged space hoggas, uh, which are sort of like helicopters, but more like pigs. It's a, it's basically a flying pig with windows. I guess it's more like. <laughs> It's more like the bus from uh, Totoro, the cat bus, but it's a pig and it's more like a flying thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if that doesn't make it clear, I don't know. I don't know what would. (laughs) Also, I want to reiterate that I am not high all the time, just for the record. He's just high in life. I'm just high in life. One day we need to do a jam where we do some drugs and see what (laughs) happens. Because I have no... I I don't even know what that would look like. It would probably look the same. It It would probably look the same. Every single one of our game designs has been conceived while completely sober. <laughs> Actually, I, I bet it would like go the other way. So all of a sudden, we would just have like a boring ass train simulator, like chess. <laughs> we just made or, chess. or chess. We would just make a chess simulator. But think yeah. about it. It's like you're the pawn. You're the board. You're the you're board. the board. You're the board, and you don't do anything. And people just play chess on you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would make for an interesting multiplayer game where where one player is the board and they just sit there and watch as the other players actually. But they can flip themselves if shit gets out. They can buck and they can buck like a like a mechanical bull and the, the it's physics based and then the people who are playing have to uh, try to keep their pieces on the board. Mm. Right. Um yeah, so the game then ended up there's uh so there's three types of characters in the game there's mercenaries scientists and uh the goopoids. goopoids and you have to use your elevator to try to get the employees or scientists uh, up to the roof so they can get into your space hogga you have to get the mercenaries to the appropriate floors so they can protect the employees and kill goopoids and you also need to use your doors to try to close off areas where goopoids are, you know, trying to jump across or get in. And you can also crush things under your elevator and use the doors to the elevator to to crush things as well. So uh, we, we all end up with 13 upgrades as well. You can get additional mercenaries. They can hit harder. You can put a rocket engine on your elevator. You can also uh, spikes on the top of it. Put spikes on the top of it so that any goopoids that fall down the elevator shaft will explode on it. Yeah. So it's also an RPG. Right. This is so far my favorite game that we've done in a two-day yeah, jam. Yeah, by far. I think, I think partially because it's a totally different genre than we... Like, it's not an action sort of character-based game like most of our I think it's are. one of the only games we've made that doesn't feature a, you being a character. Right. Well, we have, we have made, for part of the uh, Butterscotch Jam, I think the one game that we didn't show... Was actually the game. I don't know if you remember the set. The game that we were made that we made the Friday before we started the Butterscotch mm-hmm. Jam, which is a five day jam. We actually made six games. 
It was like a terrarium simulator. Yeah, and so like there are these there you had to essentially balance this ecosystem, um, and it actually was I thought it was pretty fun. And it was pretty hectic, and it was like a top down thing. And you had to, there were these bugs that would what they had explosive eggs, and you had to rip the eggs out of their butts and then like plant them before in. they exploded. Yeah. yeah, and they would walk around and eat plants, and then plants would grow and right. It was uh, this little tiny things would grow up over time simulator. and evolve. And the funny thing is, like Sims are are hard to make because they're not fun until it's done. And yes. Uh, which was the problem we had with this game right, as well. Right, And so, yeah. I mean, Seth worked, so, I mean, pretty much all of Seth's work was actually on the AI construction for the game because that's also one of his weakest points just as a game's programmer in general is AI stuff. Um, so I think it was, I tend to think of problems really, really simply, and AI tends to get complicated pretty fast. Although yeah. it can be quite simple. In this case, it ended up being quite simple, I believe. Which is essentially... Um, I mean, you you think so, but it wasn't really. <laughs> well, but all of the wasn'ts had to do with handling exceptions, correct? As far as like... The, I mean, well, there's basically three rules, which is that goopoids randomly walk, and then if they get close to a worker, they'll try to kill it. Uh, workers, if you open the elevator door, will run to the elevator shaft. And mercenaries will, if they see a goopoid and the door is open to that goopoid's floor, then they will sprint off the elevator to try to kill it. And they will yeah, also return but the there's so much more to. So the weird thing about all this is the only thing any of the characters can do is walk left or right or stand still. Uh, but there's so much decision making that has to go into play in terms of which one of those things you do. Uh, so, like, for example, the worker, he needs to run toward the elevator shaft. Right. Mm-hmm. But he has to stop if the elevator isn't there waiting. So. Right. Now that's an additional decision-making metric. And then if there's a goopoid close by him, he has to prioritize, I need to run away from the goopoid regardless of whether the elevator is waiting for me because I need to you know, get the hell out of there. Um, so it's, it basically became like a hierarchical decision-making yeah. system. And, for, I, and for most everything. AIs tend to be, actually, tend to be a hierarchical structure. Yeah, or I should say prior, priority-based. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was all in all, I think, I think it is true that the AI was super simple. Um, but since the whole game revolved around it, cause you, all you can do is move the damn elevator. And if the characters didn't cooperate with what you sort of were intending, yeah, then it's very then, frustrating. Yeah. And, it, and it, we saw that at the very beginning in the first, I think 12 hours or something, you know, we, we had the elevator moving up and down and we had some characters walking around inside of the building, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't walk into the elevator on purpose. They would just kind of walk around randomly. Yeah. Well, and even in its done state, there are a few little little quirks that the players have. Like the mercenaries, if they get on top of your elevator, just stand there. Like they'll never get off. Yeah. <laughs> the mercenaries, their decision making is basically, if I'm on the elevator, just stay on it uh, until I see something to kill. But if they're yeah. on the roof of the elevator, then they can't see things to kill that are on the bottom floor. And so they won't get off. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff, and of course we couldn't I couldn't uh, find every exception like that because we only had 48 hours. Right. But I think it turned out pretty well. Yeah, it turned and out great for the for the short time span. I mean, it works very well most of the time. There are only a few, and, and even the ones that where it is weird, like the the case where they just won't get off the top of the elevator. As a player, you will learn that very quickly, and then you just work around it. Right. Well, I think it's actually yeah, it, it didn't. None of it broke the game. It actually added yeah. some more interesting constraints. Like the the mercenaries actually. They essentially blindly sprint toward goopoids, but they have like a sort of time on this. So, so say you're you're moving your elevator downward, you know, quickly, and there's a mercenary on it, and you actually want him to get on the third floor because there's a worker that's being chased. But as you're descending, he sees a guy on the second floor, and he's just going to start running. Uh, and so the problem is, if you don't close that door, uh, he will literally just leap off onto the second floor and go kill something without, like, essentially, they kind of misbehave like that. Yeah, they do have line of sight too. So if you don't want the mercenary to see the goopoid on that floor, then close the door before he gets there. Otherwise, make sure you don't close running. it on him, though. <laughs> yeah, you might crush him in the door. Um, but yeah, so that game, it turned out, I think our our people who uh, who come to the forums and stuff have been playing the crap out of it. Some somebody played what. Seven, ten hours. Yeah, but it was like six, uh, six or eight hours of the thing. Uh, so people are putting in a ton of time, which is cool for us because that means it's Good. a much better, more sort of fleshed out game than we made last time with Shepard, which was like a ten minute right. thing. Um, and if you want to get it, yeah, go to uh, bscotchshenanigans.itch.io, and then th- you'll just find our games there. Uh, you can also just search on itch.io for "Do you even lift?" 
Uh, and we'll also put links up uh, in places where this podcast is posted. And we did um, we did put Bscotch ID integration in it. So you can log in and it'll track your stats. It won't save your progress. Correct. Between right. stuff. but um, And then we've also, so we can't really go too public with this thing until after the contest is over. But uh, we do want to try to maybe, you know, take another few days and, and flesh this concept out into something even cooler further down the road. So this probably won't be the last that you'll see of this amazing elevator. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually wanted to talk about the the process of making it because we had let's do had, it. Yeah, we had one. Oh yeah, thing. let's talk about jamming. So, well, jamming is you know it's it's an art form I think uh, in that it requires sort of some some knowledge of of how best to do. And in our case, we've always sort of followed the mantra of you know uh, essentially less is more. Keep your scope very small. And keep your team very small. And the truth of the matter is that we've actually only jammed with Adam on one other game before, Seth and I. Two other games. There's also I I know CPR was the other one. Right, right, right. I know CPR. So it's two years ago. And the interesting thing is, so we don't we're as a two person team. The one huge advantage you have is that you can totally suck at game design because you can work extremely organically. You basically just say. In this case, we would say something like, okay, it's an elevator simulator. Uh, the elevator is going to go up and down, and you can open doors. Go. Yeah, and then Seth um, can just start programming exactly that, and then as he's doing it and playing with it, then we can come up with more ideas about what yeah, else can exactly. go. Then it would be like, okay, I'm opening the doors, but that's it. There's no, it's just, I'm just an elevator. Right. <laughs> right. Now what? This Let's is put an some guys in the building. Exactly. And so the, the, the curious thing, though, is that with, with three you know fully like competent, powerful team members on board uh there's this interesting there's this interesting problem that arises which is one of which is just one of communication um and that is essentially if we want the third whoever the third sort of party is whether it's myself if adam and seth are working on something or adam in this case if if seth and i are working on the main game um there actually needs to be a layer of planning involved in order to make full use of that person because you can't have three people organically working on a game uh in the case of this, because, you know, we, if we don't know what the hell we're programming, it's hard to build things modularly in order to plug them in. Yeah. Well, in between Sam and Seth, they basically, they cover the pieces that can be done organically because Sam could just generate art assets, which you can just say, here's the thing that I want to exist in the game. And then Seth can program it and make it exist. And then otherwise, Seth can be working on whatever the core mechanic of the game actually is. But there's no room in there for, uh, for another programmer to come in. And try to program stuff if that right makes sense. And a part of the big reason we've never, you know, we've we've always sort of eschewed design docs as a silly idea, and uh, generally planning as a thing for games as a as a silly idea. Because I think partially because we've generally been so bad at designing games. Well, yeah, when you don't Honestly, know what you're like, doing, why make a plan? <laughs> you know, like your plan's going to be terrible. Yeah, if you say, okay, we need, you know, we need fifty levels. Here's the mechanic. Here's the entire upgrade. If you plan this out in like a 40 page design doc, I mean, you're, you're a damn idiot, frankly, because like, well, and I, I also feel like it's just not going to go down. Like, imagine if we sat down and we tried to plan out Crashlands as is, um, looking at this, just this, the sheer weight of that design document, I would just get depressed. Right. Yeah. Like, that's so much shit. Like, it's so huge. I can't imagine looking at this entire thing and being like, okay, well, page one, let's get started. You know, right. it's just, it's just too much. And so it's, it's true that I think in, you know, in planning, you give up some flexibility, right? You're always going to, but the point is that that's, that doesn't matter if you have a, have a better idea of what you're doing. And I think we've, none of us have ever, have ever really trusted ourselves to know what the hell we were doing before making the game started. Yeah. I feel like we can find fun in just about any oh, yeah. game mechanic or any game concept, but actually sort of inventing the fun up front. On paper. On paper and just knowing that it's going to work. We, I, we just don't have the confidence to do that. Right. And so what actually happened this time is that Adam just continued working on Crashlands over the weekend because for the first, I don't know, 24 hours, actually. 24 yeah, hours, yeah. For the first 12, well, 36 day. even, actually. It was like, I didn't start working on anything else until Saturday night. Like yeah, late, eight. late Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. Um, until we realized sort of how how the third person could plug in in a really powerful way, and that was essentially that Adam, so the third the third operation here becomes sort of the loop maker 
which is always the thing that jam games are are missing, or at least our jam games are always missing, which is that they always have a fun mechanic. They're interesting to play, you know, on the sort of short loop, which is like a minute or something like that. They're interesting to interact with. Um, you would call them fun, but they tend not to offer much beyond, you know, two, ten minutes of play because there's nothing that happens. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to work toward. And so with a little bit of upfront planning, we essentially found that, or we, we've discovered then through this jam that that third person can actually get to work building those upgrade tracks and stuff, which only need to basically flag, you know, variables on and off that then can be plugged into the game at a later time. Well, and of course, designing the interface for those right, things. Right, which is largely like a large chunk of the work for that, actually. That's where, that's where almost all the work goes. So we, uh, we had Adam switch onto that on Saturday night once we essentially figure out what to do. And I think, I think all of us are actually really excited to do, we just decided on Sunday night that we need to do a few more, uh, in-house jams. Some post-Crashlands jams. Right. To just, just figure out how to really work together on, on projects of various scopes. So say if we say, okay, we're going to make a game in eight hours, which we've done, you know, plenty of times. If we have a th- our third, you know, powerhouse involved, how can we leverage that? Yeah, and well, then and stretch this is it gonna out be to like a two week, a two week level, and then you know make a short game with it. Right, and then, and then because of the fact that in the past, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting to to note that since I've I've been in the studio for a little over a year now, mm-hmm. and in that time, we have never designed a game. I've never designed a game. I've only worked on well, games shit, that we already never designed existed a game since I've been. But that's exactly right. <laughs> even before I was there, even new games were not designed. They just came into being organically, starting from an initial idea. And, and it's one of those, I mean, this is an important, uh, lesson, actually. If you're coming in as a, as a new dev, you want to, you know, start your own studio or make your own games, that, that's actually the way to start is to start with a tiny, tiny team where you don't have to communicate that, that clearly, right? Where people have very well defined roles so that you can build things organically because you don't know what the hell you're doing yet. Right. You have well, you no idea what you're doing. Yeah. You, so when you, but, but you do know enough because when you play a game, you feel it, right? So yeah. most people most people come into game development because they are players of games. True. And everybody has their opinions about game X or game Y, and they're like, oh, this game sucks because bleh, or it takes too long to do this, you know? And so if you feel like, you know, you have that sort of intuition or you can make those comments about what doesn't work in a game, uh, then you can be honest with yourself about your own game. And, and you, even if you don't know enough to design it, as you're working on it, you can... You can make those comments like, oh, this doesn't this doesn't feel right. Yeah. So long as you're willing just to strip stuff out completely or retool. I mean, even with Crashlands all the way until the very end, uh, we would go back and all of a sudden realize that something was just not the way it needed to be. And Seth right. would be like, all right. I mean, he'd often be not that happy about it, but he'd be like, all right, I'm going to go <laughs> rip out this entire system and replace it with something better. Right. And, See you tomorrow. And I, yeah. yeah I and think- that's because it wasn't designed, but but. The reason that 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 still worked out okay is because had it been designed, it would have been designed the wrong way. Right. And so, as, yeah. as a as a small you know startup studio, having a tiny number of people with a small number of communication channels and a tightly scoped, very tiny project, actually a series of projects, where you get to just grow them organically, kind of figure out what it is that you're doing, learn what it even means for a game to be interesting and fun and all that kind of stuff. If you start there and then actually start designing stuff, then all this is, I mean, if you look at like, if you look at Seth's uh, first major game attempt, which would be, uh, what was Sky it? Brawler. Sky Brawler, right? Sky Brawler. That thing had a design document. I remember it. I had an 80 page design. Yeah. A huge design document for, for a, you know, a first And I didn't know shit. Like I was, (laughs) and as a result, the game never got done as, as Seth was making it, it still grew organically because he was learning as he was making the game and play testing it, that his original design document was just way off in terms of what the player experience would be. Yeah. You do. And of course, eventually I think I got 13 levels made or something and I had to, I had to like stop working on it because I was and I was adhering to the original plan, but the plan was was flawed. Yeah. And the further I got, the more the the more sort of, you know, vibrantly those flaws were on right. display. Right. And so I think the other interesting it, thing though is that you don't want to add to your list of things that you have to do as an indie dev uh maintaining a game design doc, you know, like <laughs> yeah, if yeah, you have an 80 yeah. page doc and you change something, now you, like you better read through the damn thing again and be like, okay, you know, that's going to echo into this. 
and this and this and this. Like that's basically how design works, right? It's it's all cascade based stuff. So the more systems you have, is part of the reason why Crashlands has taken so long. It's a huge game. It's got a ton of systems, and so any one change has caused echoes into all the other design systems that need to Maybe. be rebalanced. Maybe it's the case that when you first start out as a developer, you need to be like a baby. You need to be purely operating on emotional impulses. Right. Well, right. and on right. and on uh, on a failure correction loop, right? Where you do something, learn that that's not the thing you're supposed to do, and then do something else instead. Right. Yeah. And never, because, never get discouraged by that fact, of course. Yeah. Babies yeah. don't give a fuck when they screw up. <laughs> right? What's my favorite one where someone's like, think about if you had the attitude now about failure when you were a baby. If you... Tried to walk once, it didn't work, and you're just like, mm, I guess, I, I guess, guess I can't. I guess I, guess I can't walk. For me, you know, uh, some people can walk; they're talented at walking. But <laughs> I just don't have it in me. It's not for me. I'm just gonna roll everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of would be awesome, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, why, as long why, as you're getting around, that would be pretty hilarious. If there's like a whole group of people. Like if people were actually sort of segmented into those who walked into two groups, <laughs> and those those who just rolled or crawled. Uh, this sounds like a sci-fi uh, novel to me. It does. Actually, that would be interesting. The damn know. rollers. Stick the, the rollers. Uh, <laughs> so so but what this means, though, is so we do have a few sort of takeaways from Game Jam experiences, which include this past Game Jam, which are some, if you're going to do it, and, and even if you're, uh, even if you don't know programming yet, or, you know, if, if you like the idea of making a game, you should just do a Game Jam at some point, because it's, oh, yeah. it's really great. It's just two days. It's two days. It's a great experience. You're going to end up with a terrible product in the end, almost guaranteed. But it's so fun. But you'll know that going in and you'll learn a lot and it's a lot of fun. Because even in the end, when you have a terrible game that you have made that you can play, that's amazing. You know, it's really cool that you get to do that. It's like when you see babies oh. walking around like idiots because they can't control their legs properly. Yeah, exactly. But they're, they're still walking, walking around. Yeah. Who gives a they're, shit? They're not really executing, but they got it. They got it going on. Yeah, they got they that little like hilarious <laughs> right. sort of like stick man thing going on. Right. You know? They're taught. But listen, I, so I have one. I do have one pro tip. Yeah. Though, so we should throw out for, some pro tips. Okay. So for people who are going with, uh, like, if they haven't really worked on games much or or even at all. Talk to the people who you're going to work with beforehand and try to settle on one or two tools that you're going to be using. So if your team, for example, is like, oh, we're either going to be using Unity or Game Maker. Then use Game Maker. Well, then, yeah, for starters, for starters, definitely use Game Maker. But yeah, we should, but we should definitely, that should just be a clear point that we put on the table, which is if just you use. are in it, if you've never made a game before, even yeah, if you're a programmer, but if you've yeah. never made a game before, if you're going to start a 48 hour game jam and you're going to try to make it in unity you're nuts yeah i was leave it at that i'll i'll yeah that extra d man it, the extra d you know you got you got 50 percent more d to worry about but it like quadruples the the amount of time it takes to at least it. it's an yeah. exponential d guys it's, it's huge d. among the <laughs> among the biggest d's you've ever seen is that third the, d. <laughs> I think that's the the rival band the tenacious d yes exponential exponential, d. exponential d. d yeah but uh but the the bigger point is try not to go into it totally blind if you have some idea of what tool you're going to be using download that onto your computer beforehand right and do the tutorials before you get there. Yeah, just to give you uh, so an that, idea. So that you know the IDE, so you're not spending you know, the first 15 hours just trying to figure out what to click on. Yeah, on Friday before the game jam started, we spent about, I don't know, three or four hours just kind of setting up all of our stuff to make sure we're getting our GitHub repository set up, uh, making sure all of our you know Google Docs stuff was in line, making sure we're all up to date on GameMaker, just kind of getting the shit out the of the infrastructure right. you need yeah. the infrastructure in place you need your you need development infrastructure cleaned up yeah yeah which which does kind of come down to the second point which is uh in my in my opinion i don't know if, I don't know if you guys agree on this but i think it's usually a better idea to go into a jam with people you know than to just jump in with complete strangers for the big reason that uh, if you know them beforehand then you can talk to them beforehand and settle on these things so that everybody's on the same page and you don't need to waste time, you know, at the beginning, getting people onto the same page. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's then, also, it's important to be able to, good design comes from being able to argue with other people effectively. Yeah. And it's hard to argue with strangers because you don't know how they're going to react. It is. And like, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be mean. You'll be like, Steve, your elevator idea is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. You know, get and out. It, 
And I mean, maybe it is, but you can still turn it into a fucking awesome right. game. <laughs> damn so. right. <laughs> yeah, you need to go with the improv yes and approaches, which is what we do when we prepare for games. Which and, and, the, and that actually does come down like that comes back to the when we were doing our design. Uh, as soon as Sam said, "What if you're the elevator?" That was actually the first idea proposed, mm-hmm. and we and went the with last. It. Yeah, and we just yeah we just, yeah. we don't have time to argue. And the interesting so. thing, of course, so again, getting back to the point, we're we're sort of. Uh, we're at a stage now where we've done enough of these games and Crashlands, I think has been a really just a good sort of crucible for us as far as design goes. Um, so we're the weird thing was that the thing that we drew on the board on Friday night it matched, you know, nearly perfectly with what we created at the end. And which has never happened. Cause usually we don't even have anything on the board. Exactly. <laughs> so here that was the first time where we actually, in my mind, this is the first game we actually designed. I will just say it. I think you're right. And yeah. it turned out Go. solid. So I'm just going to Good job. Wee. We're learning. We're learning. It's only taken um, three years. Okay. So I want to talk more about game jams. Sorry, but, uh, yeah. Because there are a few more got, tips we need to throw out. Okay. I was going to say we got some questions to hit, but we'll get one or two. I want to throw out a couple more pro tips, though. Okay. Pro tip it. So here, here are the, the two that in. I want to throw out, uh, which I actually did on Twitter during the jam, which are your team needs to be as small as humanly possible, right. which leads so to pro one. tip. The second one, after whichever number that one was, uh, which is there should be nobody on your team who is just a designer. Oh, God. Because you right. only need that when you have. So designers, and this isn't to, to shit on the role of a designer, because designer is a real role. Uh, it's not what most people think it is, I think. I'm pretty sure. But uh, but a game designer is somebody who works on a large project with a large team where they have people that need to do a, just a million different, very isolated tasks. And the designer is a person who comes up with the entire rule set for how the game is supposed to behave and how the player is supposed to interact with it. And then they have to convey that entire thing. And they to, exactly. They have to, to convey everyone. it to everybody else. And then and everybody else basically takes the designer's word as gospel and just implements that thing. Right. So nobody else on the team should have to think too hard about what they're doing. Right. right? And now, and they, now that's they the system. The design doc. Yeah. Now that's required for large projects like, you know, talking, you know, Bethesda style stuff where you have hundreds or thousands of employees or even even fives and tens of employees who are working on a project. Right. Because, you need certain needing a designer role because yeah, just that too much role is required. Exactly. Yeah. So you need somebody just to say, here's how it is. Go do the work. But in a game jam, everybody has to be designing constantly because you're going to be you don't have enough time to come up with a full implemented th- or, you know, a full doc. And if you do, then all of a sudden the person who's done that has nothing to do anymore and everybody will just implement that. Um, but that's and super. This is, this is true for a small studio, not, not yeah. just like jam. Yeah, just no, any, exactly. any small team. Uh, I think any team's probably smaller than like seven, maybe even yeah. six. Somewhere, yeah, somewhere between. If you have a designer, a one designer where that's their only job. Uh, depends on, on the, I mean, it depends on the game you're making too, right? And the tools you have. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Because yeah. like at the point we're at now with Crashlands, uh, I mean, like we've had to run out all of the art before we were able to do like really, really work on the story stuff. Right. Because. Yeah. But even then, hat. that's not necessarily a game designer. That's a, a story writer. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah. A, which is a totally different thing. Right. Um, so, yeah. So it's all say your, your, your group needs to be just as small as possible and nobody, everybody should be, should have work that they can have on just actively putting stuff into what will be the game, which means a programmer, artist, sound person, you know, that kind of stuff. And everybody should be involved in the game design part. So if you, if you want to be a game designer or think you are already, then if you go to a game jam, you, you're no longer just a game designer. Better be picking up some skills. Yeah, newbie. pick up a skill. You're now you're now something else too, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, so I want to throw that, if, that well, out there, which yeah. then leads us to a really good Vlambeer talk. Oh, yeah. Which just came we'll out. post a link to. Yeah, it just came out. We'll post a link to it wherever we put this thing. Uh, but so Vlambeer is a, is a small indie studio. It's also just two, it's two people in that studio, actually, or two full-time people anyway. Um, they're known for several things, uh, uh, which we won't really get into, but, but, uh, but Rami, who's one of the guys in the studio, does a lot of time traveling and just giving talks about how time to be- Time traveling. In, time traveling. Giving talks about what, it, what it's like to be uh, an, an indie game developer. So he has a great talk on how to, how to think about 
um, or it really is. It's like, it's all about, it's very negative. Actually. It's like all about all the, the things <laughs> you're doing wrong as, as a student or as an indie developer, like trying to get into the, industry. if you just need like a humility check. Yeah. It's uh, well, great. it's sort of, it's as if it's as if, uh, he, he just sat you down. Like imagine you're making your first game and you like, so how do I put this? When you when you've made a whole bunch of games, you know, looking back, you will always recognize that the first few games you made were terrible, right? Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that and they publish their first few games and try to make money on them and they spend years working on them, but they, since they haven't made very many games, they just don't have the experience to know any better. Well, and then further, their their studio and even their careers fail because those games fail because they're expecting they over, them to succeed. They, yeah, they overinvest, and so this this talk would be almost as if as if you know you are on one of these teams that's planning on spending two years on this game or whatever, and uh, and Rami, who's a brilliant guy and he's a successful indie developer sits you down and just has an honestly brutal talk with it's you great it's about so the game that you're making <laughs> yeah so i mean some of the things he says may or may not apply you know if you are working on a game well man, uh, i may, i like well, it because he, he essentially covers he covers like every domain that you need to cover as an indie dev uh and then sort of in a you know shallow because he only has got you know 45 minutes or whatever uh, dives into probably the reason why you suck at that particular thing. Yeah. Um, and the most, like the one to me that, that, you know, most sticks out for us with regards to, to Crashlands itself is the, the idea of the pitch, which is that you need to be able to pitch your game. And like the truth is we've still been battling with figuring out how the fuck to talk about this thing. Yeah. Right? We struggled with it the whole time. We're still struggling with it. I think I mean, we've, yeah. we've sort of settled on more of like Crashlands is an, you know, an op- 2D open world adventure. But at the same time, well, that's a shit. terrible pitch. It's terrible, yeah. right? <laughs> we need yeah. something else. Well, but I meat. think, you know, and, and, and the way it may just be how we're thinking about it or something, because, you know, the way he put it was, you need to be able to sell me your game in three sentences. And the entire time we've been trying to come up with a way to do it in one. Yeah. Um, right. Which, you know, maybe maybe we're being too weird about it, you know, because Crashlands is a huge game. There's so much shit in it. Well, but it is trying- also the case, though, that you're supposed to when it comes to pitching something, you're supposed to have various versions of the pitch. Right. So there's like. The, right. Right. There's the several word pitch and the sentence pitch and the three sentence pitch and the paragraph pitch and the speech that you give somebody in the two minutes that you're riding in an elevator with them. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like that. Kind of, oh, the the great part of that, the great part of his talk was uh, about the pitch was when he said, so he, you know, of course, the whole time in this talk, he's been just, you know, saying this sucks, that sucks, you know, whatever. You're probably bad at this. You're probably bad at that. And uh, then he says, okay, uh, who here is during the pitch section? He says, who here is working on a game? And nobody raises their hand. (laughs) And he's like, okay, so this is how you know that your pitch sucks because you know that I'm about to ask one of you to pitch me your game. And everyone's scared. You're so (laughs) embarrassed. You're so embarrassed about the pitch that you have that you don't even want to talk about it. Well, the fact is we wouldn't have raised our hands if we were in the audience. Jesus, no. I'd be like, oh, God, don't look at me. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, he's correct that if you're working on a game that you are embarrassed to publicly talk about, you know, then you need to work on the way that you talk about it. Right. And the weird thing to me is uh, like, we, so we made that trailer, right? Which was super effective as a Pokemon move, you know, as far as those things go. Wait, what's um, a Pokemon move? I mean, just super, super, super effective, you know. It's super <laughs> it just worked. The thing gotcha. just worked. It did a ton of work it. for us. But, and there are like a few things, you know, when we watched, we watched tons of people watch it when we were at the convention and people would always stop when the stem cell baby was being talked about or when we were talking about the infinite <laughs> inventory. Like those are the two things that people were like, what's the, you know, yeah, that would yeah. literally grab people out of, out of, as, well, yeah, out of their things that are path. super weird or super funny or that define a really good way their expectations for a genre. So like in the case of Crashlands. The expectation of a crafting game is that you spend uh, roughly 80% of your time managing your inventory, which, of course, we've removed, as we've talked about lots of times. So so that's the thing that we, we're always selling to people when we talk to them about it, like as we're having conversations. But is it actually isn't part of our current pitch. Right. Yeah. And, and it, what's really weird about all this, too, is, you know, when we think back on our on our other games with Towel Fight, we had a great pitch. 
which was shoot animals out of your face shoot animals out of your face and then we had quadrupus <laughs> rampage all we did was we just we just kicked off every email with be a quadrupus go on a rampage basically the <laughs> right. amount of the amount of fucks that we've given about the games we've made uh has actually increased dramatically to the point where like i think it's it's somewhat blocking our ability to it's talk paralyzed about because we're like <laughs> we don't know how to talk about this in a way to make it successful anymore as opposed to with the first two games where we're like these aren't going to be successful anyways so who gives a fuck? Right. You know, who gives a fuck? Let's just just <laughs> say what it is. It. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, one of yeah. our original pitches with the Crashlands email was milk a one-legged cow hippo. I don't know if that worked, you know, but it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. We need to do some A-B testing. I, I don't Clearly. know. This Ooh, is a problem actually, for us. We could so do that with, so our, that's with our newsletters, week. maybe. We should do some A-B testing. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, there you go. Watch your, watch your inbox for a newsletter yeah. soon. You'll be, you'll be part of a human experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, well let's uh, let's quickly hit one or two questions. I think we've yeah, we have one that Adam did research on that we should just hit. It is the top question. We have a question from Alan MB who says, "So I'm a stats junkie and I like to play Quadrupus Rampage rather than study for my farm tech exam. That's PH like pharmacy." Uh, so I got curious, how much time has the average Quadrupus Rampage player in B-Sketch ID spent playing Quadrupus Rampage? How much total time has been spent by everyone combined? Adam, all right, do so, your number thing. So I'll, I'll hit this. Uh, so here's, here's the deal, though. These numbers are underestimates by a lot. And that's because uh, to, in order to keep our database and our costs of things low... Uh, I've made, I've started implementing a pretty, pretty, uh, drastic data conservation policy, which is basically if, if you haven't bought into, uh, to a butter up, which is what, that's the thing that allows you to store your data on our servers. Then we actually, I just delete all records of your existence every 30 days. You don't exist to us. You just don't exist. So unless you've logged in, unless you've logged in. Uh, so yeah. So if you haven't logged in for 30 days and you have never bought anything from us, then we just, you just we just pretend like you don't exist. Yeah, we don't know anything so, about you. Yeah. Uh, so as a, as a consequence, then that means that I only have data for basically the past 30, or people who have been active for the past 30 days. Uh, who have logged in or bought the game. Who have, yeah, who have logged in the past 30 days uh, and or who bought the game at any point since we started keeping records, which was which in November January. Last, yeah, January. January, yeah. So right, yeah. Uh, that group is about 4,000 people. Uh, mm-hmm. Among those 4,000 people, uh, or across those 4,000 people, they have played a total of three years of Quadrupus Rampage, which nice. comes out to an average of six hours per player. Which is a lot. Which is a lot. Uh, but to put another number there, okay, so that's 4,000 people, right, who who I basically have stats on. Uh, since January, when we actually put Bscotch ID into Quadrupus Rampage, we've had uh, on Android and um, iOS, we've had about 300,000 people install the game, hmm. which is a lot more than 4,000. Now, the fact is that the people... It's not bad considering it's, it has been out for two it's years. Two years. No, okay. it's really not bad. But but it's also, that's, you know, 10% of the total... Actually, that's, that's less than 10% of the total people who have downloaded the game over the lifetime of the game. So 200, yeah, 300,000 sounds like a lot until you realize that Quadrupus has had 4 million plus downloads. So, uh, but anyway, so what that means is that there's, you know, whatever that is, 50 times more people who have played this game than we have records on. So that, you know, if you were to take the naive approach, that means 150 years of human time just in the past year of 10% of players who have ever played Quadrupus Rampage. That seems right, though, because back when we were recording, uh, when we had Flurry integration, yeah. which does analytics for us and stuff. We ended up... And that's all anonymous. That's that's not attached to B-Scotch ID, so that's yeah. every single player. But in the first six months, it was, what, like 75 years of human yeah, I think it was time? 72 years was the email, that newsletter we sent out. We sent out yeah. an email with Tack, who had grown a long, fuzzy beard and right. become an old man. He <laughs> <laughs> was all hunched over with a, with a cane. Which kind of blew our minds a, like a little more than I had anticipated. When I saw that number... It was it was simultaneously thrilling and kind of upsetting because I was like, <laughs> "All right, we've we've absorbed like a human life." <laughs> yeah. Well, I like to think of it this way: we've created seventy-five years of happiness. That is probably the better way. That's, to think. that's definitely <laughs> instead of that we siphoned away people's lives like some kind of weird vampire. Man, I am in a dark mood today. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. 
Actually, every year of life that we siphon away from the human population, uh, we you add. You mean every year of happiness that we add. We add to, well, we add to our own. Yeah, we're actually, we are uh, vampires that we use. We use Time our video vampires. games to consume life from our players. That's right. Just so mm. you know. Just be aware of this. Delicious. <laughs> delicious. Delicious time life. Uh, uh, any other stats? Uh, I mean, that, that's like that's all I really got up here. I mean, you know, other games. So Quadrupus Rampage over its lifetime is is by far the most successful game that we have. Uh, although, actually, Flop Rocket is a very close second in terms of overall revenue because we did a better job with that one. Uh, but <laughs> its its number of players is is much much lower. So. Uh, and we, but we have records basically for the dawn of time on that one. So uh, since the dawn of time, we've had about 1.7 million players across both platforms, uh, which is that's not nothing. Good, that's pretty cool. That's good, uh, yeah, but I, that's good. Yeah, uh, and we but we, already, we had some episode a ways back about the stats on those, though undoubtedly they've changed by now. Yeah, and that episode, which was called "To the Moon," our flop rocket players had just reached the moon in terms of total distance traveled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is cool. Which is cool. Uh, okay, we'll do we'll do one more question just so that we won't have wait, done a podcast wait. where we only answered one question. I, <laughs> what we're saying is we have literally sent people over the moon with happiness via well past rocket. the moon with lifetimes of happiness. You can't moon. really go over the moon because there is no. It's a phrase. Space. Seth, it's <laughs> an idiot. <laughs> uh, you can go around the moon. You shut your or mouth. Or past it. Uh, but you know what they say, you say what does it say? Uh, reach for the moon because even if you miss, then you'll burn up in the atmosphere. <laughs> no, you, I think sure it's like even if you miss, you'll end up on an escape velocity from Earth's orbit and then die while revolving around the sun forever. <laughs> Something like that. I'm pretty sure. That's, it's a great. Uh, it's a very inspirational saying. Whatever. It's pretty inspirational. It, it really gets me going. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, Kevin eight 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 asks. Would it be possible for you to have other people on the podcast, such as your game dev friends yeah. or acquaintances in St. Louis? It's certainly possible. I mean, it's possible. It's not, it's Kevin, not anything's possible, including <laughs> floating around Ke- the sun. Kevin, you just got to believe in yourself. Right? <laughs> uh, just be yourself, man. I think we're, we're not yet at the point where we want to do that, I think, just because we're, you know, we're still trying to figure out. We're still well, trying to, until we're we, like at a point where we feel like we've, been successful yeah enough. we want to we need to establish our own level of success as a as a podcast before well, we and i also think you know the, the sort of impetus for doing this podcast to begin with was we wanted a, a way to reach our players and to sort of grow the community around our games and and a, just a cool way for us to talk to to you guys um and I don't know, just to me, it seemed like it would be weird for us to bring other people in and talk about their stuff if that's not what our listeners want. So I think it just comes down to like, if people do want that, then like, hell yeah, that would be awesome. I have no idea. Yeah, though. Well, and I think also, I mean, this podcast has changed and will continue to change uh, over time, especially when, you know, right now we're in the middle of Crashland. So we talk about that a lot. Um, our, our current, the people who are currently asking questions tend to be asking about Crashlands and about uh, our old games in general, because it's, you know, the number of people who know about this and, and who are into what we're doing. It's about 300. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's a two or 300 people and they're all people who are who found it because of our games, you know, n- nothing even close to the other way around. And, and, uh, and as time goes on, as, as we get a bigger name for ourselves and people find it via other means and, and even as things like as Crashlands goes out as a, as a much bigger splash, uh, and brings new people in that are unfamiliar with the, the history of the studio and that kind of stuff, then, then probably this thing will expand in scope. So that we'll be talking about more than just what we're up to. And in that case, then, you know, once something, once that kind of thing starts to happen and, and the podcast kind of changes structure a bit, then then we'll we'll definitely uh, entertain the idea of bringing on other people. And, and the other thing is other people have to have, you know, a, a motivation and interest in being on our podcast. Right. So, like, if we're if we're if our reach is only a couple hundred people who are mostly our fans, uh, that's not very useful for <laughs> another another developer. <laughs> Anybody. Yeah. Although I, I will say this podcast does seem to have a bigger reach than some of the uh, podcasts that like we've been asked to come on to, where they where they interview game developers and yeah, I mean, we like do that. have a built-in audience of four million people, so we're kind of cheating in that regard. Well, no, because we we threw 
nearly four million of those aside by having no way to contact them. <laughs> we've, they, yeah, we've made mistakes. You know, I made mistakes. Prior, prior to Scotch ID, we had no way to keep people around. Which yeah. is like, you know, when you think about it, that should have been probably the first thing <laughs> that we thought about as an Well, the first studio. thing we had to think about was making a game. Yeah. We had to at least do that once but I mean, before yeah, we thought about it. I don't else. know. Man, <laughs> made so many errors. So well, then, you know, life is just one long series of failures. Yep. So and you then just, you die. And then God, you we're die. just so dark. God damn, God damn. <laughs> Adam you, sucked you into my black hole of despair. <laughs> and you die. So on that note, uh, thanks for listening, everybody, <laughs> to Coffee we need to, with I don't know. We, I feel like we need something like cute at the end of this thing. I don't know what it would be, though. Maybe, maybe, uh, we'll, make this well, maybe we'll make play a, a little song noise. or something. Hey, new cat, make a squeaky noise. There is a tiny jellyfish that scientists are pretty sure is immortal. So has that. Is that the one that kills you in one touch that lives off the coast of Australia? <laughs> you just can't let it go. I'm trying cool. to hide the facts here. <laughs> oh, shit. The world, anyway, the world's when a it dark kills you in the most place. euphoric way possible, that you're so uh, stoked about it. It feels great. I'm pretty sure it causes you so much pain Sam, that you have a heart attack. You guys just keep ruining it. In fact, you die from the pain, yeah. actually. That's Which the is only possible. thing. It's actually, I didn't realize it was possible, but it's actually possible. Its yeah. sting actually just makes you super sad. And it makes you, you, can, you so sad that you die as a It, it actually <laughs> dies. It separates your soul from your body. And that's how it keeps its immortality going. And it sends your soul straight to hell. It's basically... <laughs> It's a portal straight it's a de- to Satan's it's a doorstep. Demon portal hellfish. Jesus Christ, guys! <laughs> we almost had it. Oh, uh, yeah. That was uh, I, I, Australia's a rough place. Yeah, That's we really true, don't swim there. No. Uh, <laughs> or okay. go on the surface. Neither of those are very good options. Well, it's just you know what else? What else is terrible, uh, guys? It's all I got. Let's just get it. Let's just, just get, get it, it out, out of your there. system. <laughs> get it out. T- well, yeah. Okay. Something else is terrible as I made this this fucking disgusting lime chicken <laughs> concoction today. I uh, I looked at the recipe and it's like, oh, Southwest chicken. And I'm like, sure. Southwest. That seems fine. It's a good and direction the, in general. The recipe was for a, uh, for a uh, pound and a half of chicken and it called for three quarters of a cup of lime juice. What? Was like, Gross. It's a lot of lime juice. So, so it was like it was that and then just a whole bunch of other spices. And I was like... I'm going to ease back on the lime juice. So I put in a half cup of lime juice for two pounds of chicken. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you with me so far? I, 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 the I got the math. Yeah, the math's working out. Just uh, put in everything else and uh, I cooked it up. And my God, it was like a, it was like the chicken just turned into limes. Like just a <laughs> fucking lime sponge. Did disgusting. You, did you stringy. marinate it? Because I mean, lime. Yeah. It's going to be That's acidic what, as fuck. Well, no, it's like you're supposed to marinate it for half an hour. And I was like, I'm only going to do it for 15 minutes. I'm just going to, I'm just going to put it in, put Man. it in fridge, let it sort of sit. But my God, it's just it's disgusting. <laughs> that is so, gross. I almost died of sadness from eating it. Key lime, <laughs> key lime chicken pie. It'll yeah. separate your soul from your body in no time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, all right, you guys, this has, right been, this, has been, <laughs> this has been Coffee with Butterscotch, and we are Butterscotch Shenanigans. Thank you for listening. And if you want to play our games, you can find them at games.bscotch.net. And we also have, uh, now we have an itch.io page. Apparently. Where our, ele- yep. where our elevator game that is. you can scratch. So. I just had to so you, <laughs> you can go... If you need to scratch that itch, you go over to bscotch. Slash do you even lift? Uh, well, you can just go to bscotchshenanny.itch.io, and and it'll be there. Uh, we also have forums over at forums.bscotch.net, and we're always lurking there, usually always. So come on in and say hello, and we, we might wave back. And if you want to ask questions for the podcast and vote for other questions, you can go to podcast.bscotch.net. All right, you guys, we will see you next week. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Peace. Hey, everyone. This is Adam. Normally, the podcast would be over at this point, but after we stopped recording, there was some kind of amusing stuff that happened, and I decided to just tack it on to the end here. So there's no context. This was just us talking. If you are uh, sensitive to gentle mockery of the Christian religion, then you probably should not listen anymore. And that's it. Hope you enjoy. Does nobody have a good piece of thought? I think we went. Yeah, that's a dark hole. <laughs> we all got. We all fell in it. It's like a quicksand. Oh, Jesus, that's a so quicksand. Jesus, a quicksand. Jesus, that's the worst kind. <laughs>
It's because he can walk on water, so he goes and stands on like kind of. That's wet. true. And he, he serves Beach. as like a what is it like a typhoid Mary? Is that the name of it? No, anyway, he's he's like a. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> Pretty sure Jesus is like the typhoid Mary of quicksand. I'm not super <laughs> certain on the facts. He's like a I'm false pretty... beacon where he goes and he stands in the middle of quicksand. And then you run out to be like, hey, Jesus, what's up? With and then he's like, psych. A glorious handshake. Okay, so here's a question. Jesus can, Jesus can walk on water. But can but he how walk many... on quicksand? Ooh. Well, how many water molecules must be present for it to count? So like... Can he just, does he walk on people? Can he walk? People are <laughs> it's 70% water. It's water. Jesus it, walks on people. He can walk on clouds. Technically, he could probably walk through the air in very humid Exactly. Or if the air is solid to him, he would be trapped. <laughs> <laughs> Never send Jesus to the rainforest. That's the, the physics. That. The physics of Jesus elude me. <laughs> <laughs> He can turn water. He can turn water into wine. He can walk on water. He can create fish. He could destroy the entire earth with that trick. You just touch the fucking ocean. Boom, we're done. Boom, the entire ocean is wine. Which fuck everybody. You're gonna die a drunken, horrible death. Although you didn't drink the ocean anyway, so you just end up with a bunch of salty wine. <laughs> salty does, wine. Wait, delicious. does he? So does he not turn the other stuff in the water into wine? Just the water part? Probably just the water part. So it's, I it's wonder like, if he could turn the water into barbecue sauce or something. That would make it better if it was also filled with salt. So here's what I think is interesting. I think the Jews weren't big fans of pork, though, which is like the primary Well, you can put barbecue sauce. sauce on anything. On anything. I feel so like the, pri- it- the primary driver of barbecue sauce, I feel like, has been pork because of its terrible flavor. 